The following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, April 2nd at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Do me a big favor if you would. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Ruth chapter 2. We're going to read the entire chapter this morning. Ruth chapter 2 verses 1 through 23. And, and before I do that, if we have Romans chapter 8, verse 28, we can either put that up on the screen or you can, you can kind of flip to that in your Bible as well. As Christians, if you're a Christian here this morning, there's something we know or something we should know. We know, Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says that all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose, right? And we know that. And sometimes we don't get to see all of that. As life is happening, things just look confusing, things, things are really hard, you know, and, and we've said that life is almost sometimes like looking at the backside of a tapestry where all the yarn is confused and just kind of jumbled together. But if you ever flip that over and look at the front side, the top side of that tapestry, then you know that all of a sudden the, the designer has been up to something all along. And so we've actually said that the book of Ruth is one of the best illustrations of this truth in Romans 8.28. That for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. And so we're going we're gonna to continue our, our time in the book of Ruth this morning in chapter 2. And if, if you remember from last week, Ruth and Naomi had just gotten back to Bethlehem. And the Bible says that the whole town was stirred because of them. In other words, they were the talk of the town. This was what was happening in Bethlehem. Ruth, the Moabite, came back with Naomi. So everybody in Bethlehem had heard about Ruth, including Boaz. We're going to meet a new character in the story today, a man by the name of Boaz. What Boaz didn't know, though, was everything that God was up to. He had heard about Ruth, but he didn't know that one day Ruth was going to become his wife. And this was the day that he would meet his future wife for the very first time. Naomi didn't know that this, or rather Ruth didn't know this was the day she'd meet her future husband for the very first time. But God was up to something, bringing them together. And let's get the story here. Here's, here's how it all happened. Ruth chapter 2, verse 1 through 23. God, help us to listen well as we read this passage together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they responded, the Lord bless you. Pause for a moment. I love the way Boaz just takes his faith right into the workplace. I love that. He's the same there as he is anywhere else. Verse 6. Or verse 5, rather. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Now, I don't know exactly how he said that, 
Like, man, whose young woman is this? Or, or whose, whose woman is this? Yeah, I have no idea how he said this, but, but we do know how the foreman who was in charge of the reapers responded. Verse 6, the servant who was in charge of the reapers said, oh, that's, that's her, that's Ruth. She's, she's the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Then verse 8 happens. Look, Boaz is about to cross a number of barriers here. He's going to cross an age barrier because he's older and Ruth is younger. He's going to cross a racial barrier. He's a Jew, she's a Moabite. He's going to cross a socioeconomic barrier. He has money and social status and she does not. He's going to cross a gender barrier. He's going to cross a number of barriers. Each one of those barriers is enough to make this moment awkward, <laughs> all on its own. He's going to cross at least four. And to make matters worse, Ruth, I mean, if you were going to meet your future husband for the first time, I mean, would you want to be... Just, just out there sweating in the field for like four hours or, you know, Ruth, this is, she's about to meet Boaz here. Uh, not all made up, but here it is. Just think of this moment and then verse 8 happens. Let's read it together. Or you, you listen while I read it. Verse 8, then Boaz said to Ruth, now, listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women and let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Pause real quick. It's sad that he has to say that, isn't it? I want to get to a world where women feel safe around men. And, and I think at, at the very least, around Christian men, they should begin to feel that way. Verse 9. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then Ruth fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, why, why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a, a foreigner? And if I said that word funny, it's because I'm, I'm Jamaican, and that's how, that's how we say that word. So, Verse 11, Boaz answered her and said, Ruth, watch this, it, it's because of what you've done. I've heard. Verse 11, Boaz answered her and said, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See, pause, watch this. Ruth had poured her heart out to Naomi said, Naomi, where you go, I will go. Where you die, I will die. I'm not leaving you. You won't suffer alone. I'm going with you. I will lay down my life for you. And, and in one of the greatest displays of sacrificial love, Ruth pours her heart out to Naomi. And, and we saw last week that Naomi just said nothing. Didn't respond, completely unresponsive after that whole display. But do you know who saw all of it? God. He saw all of it. He heard all of it. And, and, and it's as if Boaz now is giving Ruth the response that, that her sacrificial love deserved and doing so on God's behalf. Listen, you, maybe 
maybe no one that you expected to acknowledge your sacrifice does, but I promise you God sees it all. He will not forget your labor on behalf of others and, and on his behalf. Hebrews chapter 6 verse 10, 10 will tell us as much, all right, that God is not unjust. He will not forget the love that you have shown for his people as you, as you seek to care for them. So Boaz, acting on behalf of God here, he speaks kind words to Ruth. In verse 13, she, she responds and she says, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And Boaz wasn't finished with his generosity. Verse 14 and at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel into wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. And then, verse 15, when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, hey, hey, come here. Let her glean even among the sheaves. And do not reproach her. And also, pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean. And do not rebuke her. So, she gleaned until evening. And then she beat out what she had gleaned and it was about an ephah of barley. And for our purposes, that's about 22 liters or slightly less than six gallons of grain. Much more than what she should have been able to get in a day. Enough, some people say, for three or four weeks. Not a bad day's work. So she gleaned until evening, and she got about an ephah of barley, verse 18, and she took it up and went into the city. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name whom I worked with today, his name is Boaz. <laughs> Pause. And then Naomi probably said, oh, oh yeah, that's right. I, I've got a relative. Boaz, that's right. I, I know this guy. It hadn't, it, isn't that strange? It hadn't occurred to her up until this point. She never even mentioned him. But here she is in verse 20. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. And Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, well, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, eh, I don't know about the young men thing. Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, yeah, it's good, my daughter, that you go out with his young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. Verse 23, so she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest, and she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's pray and ask God to help us with the time we have left. Father, help us again to know you more, to not just have our minds informed, but our hearts transformed by your word and by your spirit so that we'd be more like your son. And it's in his name that we pray and give thanks. And everybody said? Amen. If I have time, I'll, I'll try to do three things. I want us to see, first of all, that God guides our lives by his invisible hand. Second of all, that he provides for the poor through the generosity of others. And finally, that he, he meets our greatest need through the work of his son. All right, so we'll start with the first of those, that God guides our lives by his invisible hand. Now, as far as Ruth was concerned, she just made a decision. She got up, 
And she said, I've got to go out there and do some work. Yeah, there, there was food in Bethlehem. God had visited his people and there was bread again in Bethlehem. But none of it was just going to miraculously jump onto her plate. Yes? So she, she made a decision. She got out there and she, she began to get to work. And, and it's a good thing that she was willing to do that because apparently Naomi did not intend to be much of a help. Right? Look at verse 2 again. When, when Ruth brings up the issue of going out into the field to glean that day and to look for bread, Naomi doesn't say, oh, you know what? Give me a moment. I'll, I'll throw on something. I'll go out there and, and go with you. It'll be safer and we'll probably get more if two of us go out there. What does she say? <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. You know? Do what you got to do. Right? And so she sends her out there alone. Was she tired from the long trip from Moab? Probably Maybe she was depressed. I don't know. The text doesn't say. But she sends Ruth out there all by herself without even so much of a mention of her relatives saying, you know, why don't you, at least she could have said, why don't you go, I've got some relatives. Ask around, see where their field is and start there. Just go, my daughter. See? So she, she goes. And then we get a little bit of sarcasm from the narrator. Look at verse 3. Verse 3, we're told that as she goes out there, Naomi just happened to come to the part of the field that belonged to whom? Boaz. Now, not just to a particular field, but to the very section of that field that belonged to Boaz, the one that God was going to bring her together with, the one that God, that, that God was going to bring into her life as her husband. She just happened to get to that part of the field. No, see, the, the invisible hand of God was at work. She didn't know it, but that's what was happening. This is what Christians have called for centuries the, the providence of God, the, that, that hand of God moving things along in the direction of his plans and purposes, even if we don't realize it at the time. It's never just by chance. And God didn't just move Ruth there. He put, he put Boaz there too, didn't he? Look at verse 4. And Boaz came. He just was just going to work. He's just getting up like he would normally do, I'm sure, during this time. It's the beginning of the harvest. Let me check on all the workers and all the reapers, make sure everything's going okay. Do they have everything they need? It's just a, it's just a trip to the office. But Boaz didn't realize that he wasn't the only one going to work that day. God was going to work too, and he was bringing them together to form a family that would not only continue the line of Abraham, but would one day lead to Jesus himself coming into the world. The Bible teaches us to think about, about things this way, not just as chance, not just as coincidence, but as being guided by the providence of God. Proverbs 16.9 says, in, in his heart a man plans his way, but the Lord determines his steps. Proverbs 16.33 says much the same thing, but it says, a, a lot the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. That's the Bible's official statement on everything we think happens solely by chance. The lot, that's the root word from which we get the term lottery, this game of chance. Everything, God says, everything that you think happens strictly by chance, I determine the outcome every single time. And you wouldn't know that unless I told you, but he tells you in Proverbs 16, let me Let me tell you a story that really drove this home for me. I was, I was hearing this just this past week. My wife had come across this at, at community Bible study where she goes on Thursday mornings. But I thought this is, this is perfect for what we're talking about. It was first told by a lady named Andrea Wolfe. Andrea Wolfe was a part of a, a network of missionary organizations known as Commission. And she told this story, and it goes like this. I'll read it for you. 
Back in the 1930s, Joseph Stalin, the brutal dictator of the Soviet Union at that time, carried out what became known as the Great Purge or, or the Great Terror, depending on which side you were on. He ordered a purge of all Bibles and all believers. And in Stavropol, Russia, thousands of Bibles were confiscated and perhaps as many Christians were sent to the gulags, those prison camps, where most of them died and died unjustly as enemies of the state. Now, many years later, in 1994, this group known as Commission was doing ministry in Russia. But when the team was having difficulty getting Bibles shipped from Moscow, someone mentioned the existence of a warehouse outside the city where these confiscated Bibles had been stored since the day of Stalin. And so they did some digging, and they found out that the Bibles were still there. When they asked the local officials if those Bibles could be distributed again to the locals in Stavropol, they said yes. So the very next day, the team from Commission went with a truck and several local Russians to unload those Bibles and to distribute them. Now, one of the local Russians was a young man. He was a skeptical, hostile, agnostic college student. <laughs> I've worked with people like that for 13 years. Not you, Tom. But he, he, was, he was one of those skeptical, hostile college students, and he had come really only for the day's wages because it was good money. Now, as they were loading the Bibles, one team member noticed that the young man had disappeared. And so they went looking for him, and eventually they found him over in a corner of the warehouse weeping. See, he had slipped away hoping to take one of the Bibles for himself, perhaps wanting to read one for the first time. And he sat down for a little bit and actually began to read this Bible. And what he read shook him to the core. You want to know what part of the Bible he read? The cover. The cover. On the inside cover of this Bible that he picked up was the handwritten signature of his very own grandmother. It was her personal Bible. Out of the thousands of Bibles left in that warehouse, this young man picks up the one that belonged to his grandmother, and all of a sudden, he knew that something crazy was going on. God had just done in his heart what years of arguing with him never could. He knew that God was real, he knew that God had led him to that Bible, and he knew that God was calling him to join his grandmother amongst those who believe in his son and serve him faithfully. He couldn't deny it, and so he sat there weeping. Look, is that you this morning? Are you the skeptic? Would you consider, would you consider, if that's you, that your reason for being here this morning goes well beyond your own decision to come? Well beyond the invitation you receive from a, a loving and caring friend or relative, but that the invisible hand of God is moving you to this place and is calling out to you right now that you also might take your place among those who believe in his son and serve him faithfully? Would you, would you consider? Lord, help, if that's, if that's us this morning, would you please help any skeptic uh, to take a fresh look at what you're doing to reach out to them and to respond accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. God guides our lives by his invisible hand, and he's guided all of us here this morning to tell us that, but, but to tell us even more to tell us also that he provides for the poor through the generosity of others. Others just like us, who quite frankly, most of us have 
more than enough for just ourselves. Boaz is a great example of how God provides for the poor and those who are disadvantaged like Ruth and Naomi. In fact, we can see that. We can even see where God announces himself to be caring for the poor. Look, Look, if you will, if you have a Bible open, go ahead to Deuteronomy chapter 10. I'll show you a couple of things here that the Bible says about God. Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 18 through 19. God's heart for the poor is unquestionable, and he wants us to have the very same kind of a heart. Speaking of God there, it says that he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and he loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. And then he speaks to his people and says, verse 19, love the sojourner therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. He says to Christians today, you you should know what it's like to be somebody who's having a hard time, doesn't feel like they're fitting in in a certain place because you're citizens of heaven in a world still filled with and dominated by sin. You should know. So while everybody else is debating the global refugee crisis and, and, and concerned only about certain things, the Christians' concerns should include making sure that people have food and clothing, right? We can, we can talk about lots of other things, but even if people are only here for a little time and... Uh, and again, governments will, will have to maybe send some of those people out because they're here illegally. There's nothing wrong with governments doing that. But in the meantime, while we have contact with people, the Christian's concerns should include making sure people have food and clothing. Are you all with me on that? All right, so, so we, don't, we don't have to get too much into that. Zechariah chapter 7 verse 9 and 10 says another thing like this. God repeats himself and he says there, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. The widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, and the poor. In his book, Generous Justice, Tim Keller talks about those four and refers to them as the quartet of the vulnerable. I love that phrase. And he goes on to say there, quote, Today... This quartet would would be expanded to include the refugee, the migrant worker, the homeless, and many single parents and elderly people, end quote. Naomi and Ruth clearly qualified for this kind of care, and God had clearly provided for them to be able to receive the food and the care that they need through something called gleaning. Now, what was that? What is this gleaning thing that's happening? Look at Leviticus chapter 19. No doubt some of you were just going through your normal daily devotion in the book of Leviticus, and you would have come across this. Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 10, speaks about gleaning. And God actually says to his people there, when you reap the harvest of your land, after after you have cultivated your land and after it has produced what it is producing, back to the scripture, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings The scraps that fall after your reaping, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And he repeats this, and you know it's important when God repeats himself. He he repeats something like this in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. And he says there, when you reap your harvest in your field and you forget a sheaf, in the field. So now, pause, you've actually done the hard work of gathering and you've prepared this thing either for your own long-term consumption or for, for selling to make a profit. You've actually prepared a bundle or a sheaf 
If you forget that sheaf in the field, God says, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So what what we have to notice here is the fact that when God causes the work of our hands to produce abundantly more than we need for ourselves, He does so having the poor and the most vulnerable and disadvantaged people in mind. We have to be able to see that. And so he tells us, this is set aside for them. When I blessed the work of your hands, I, I had them in mind. He, and, he, and, he, and he says this, if, you, if, you'll, if you'll follow the analogy, don't reap your fields all the way up to the edges. Some people operate in this life with one concern only, and that is to maximize their profits. No matter what it does to anyone else, that's how they've been taught to think about business. Just the only real concern here is the bottom line and maximizing profit. Now, God is not against making profit. I mean, whose idea do you think it was to allow things to produce so abundantly? That's God's idea. He's created the world to work that way. I mean, you could put one apple seed in the ground and get a bunch of apples with a whole bunch of seeds in them. All work, the Bible says, leads to a profit. That's God's idea. He is not against profits, no matter what some people today will tell you. So yes, make a profit. Yes, recycle those profits. Yes, create jobs with those profits. Yes. But also be generous with those profits. And don't don't gather everything that your work has produced all the way up to its edges. I, I believe he would look at us today and say, Christians, look, don't reap your income all the way to its edges. Don't reap your time all the way to its edges. But consider the most disadvantaged among us and how we might be a blessing to them with some of that. All right? Now, I, I, know, I know that might offend some of you who are, who are died in the wool conservatives. <laughs> the, the idea of caring for, for refugees. Because for you, the, the only real concern that, that jumps up on the radar is whether or not they're here legally or illegally. Uh, and so the whole idea about whether or not they're actually a refugee, you don't even get to that, and, and you're offended by what I said. I can understand that. And now I, I'm going to offend the liberals. I hope that's okay as well. God didn't just provide for Ruth and Naomi here through the generosity of someone like Boaz. Did you catch the fact that he also provided for them through their own work? Did you see that? Gleaning was hard work. God was the one who set up the system that said the poor and the widow and the fatherless, yes, should be able to get enough food for themselves on a daily basis, but that provision would include their own work. I've lost some of you. You're offended. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, God inspired the Apostle Paul to say this. What does he say there? If anyone is unwilling to work, let him not eat. Now, is that because God hates people? Is God against poor people? Is he less compassionate than today's liberal? Are we to better instruct God concerning what compassion should look like? Are we wiser than he? Or or does God know what he's doing? 
See, see, in God's wisdom, he set this thing up so that the poor would also have the dignity of working to meet their own needs. And so he, he calls them to do this gleaning. Ruth, Ruth took this, this work to a whole new level, by the way. Look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 7. I mean, gleaning was hard work for anybody, but Ruth took it to another level. She gets out there, and, and in verse 7, the foreman says, she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. So no, no uh, surfing the internet for Ruth, or whatever the equivalent of that was for a gleaner. I have no idea. But she is at this thing all morning, except for a short rest. And then, after mealtime, she gets out of her lunch break, and, and verse 17 through 18, so she gleaned in the field until evening. She was there early in the morning working, and gleaned all the way till evening. I mean, she, she was already working early in the morning. When do you think she got up? I mean, she probably got up before the sun, which in my house is, is close to a sin, right? I mean, that's... This woman was up early, and she got after her business. And she was there all day. And after that, after she had gathered everything, then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah. It was a lot. Six gallons of, of grain. All day into the evening, this woman is working. And if that wasn't enough work, here you go, uh, CrossFit girl. She picked up. Look at, look at verse 18. She took it up. Right? She, she beat that thing out and took it up. And farmer carried that thing right back into the city. No wonder Boaz is, is falling in love with this woman here. Right? This was hard work. Why didn't God just say, you know, hey, the poor, you're entitled to stuff. Because, you know, the 1%, those are the evil guys. Just go ahead and shake them down for what you need. You're entitled to an equal share of what other people's work has produced. So don't worry about gleaning. Just take your sickle and your bucket and get out there and, and let them know you're here to do business. No, no, because just as much as God loves and demands generosity from the rich, he loves humility in the poor. See? See, you're, you're, you're not going to be able to get through the Bible and life with God just being a dyed-in-the-wool conservative or liberal because at some point, the gospel is going to offend both of those groups. And you're going to have to make up your mind whether or not you're with Jesus where you sense a difference between how you tend to identify yourself socially and where he stands. And that, that's all of us. All right, so, so yes, God provides for the poor through the generosity of others, but also through their own work. And I, 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 there's a story I came across that really drove this home to me. There was a kid, I don't know if he was six or eight or whatever, but, but he, he saw this butterfly coming out of a cocoon. It was slightly slit open, and the butterfly was struggling to get out of the cocoon and looked stuck. So the kid just couldn't take it. He was so compassionate that he went and found a little stick and opened up the rest of the cocoon to let the butterfly out. And the butterfly fell out of the cocoon and just fell right to the ground and couldn't move. See, the kid had compassion, but it wasn't met with wisdom. What, what the kid didn't know was that God had set up a system where the butterfly was supposed to struggle against the cocoon as it was coming out so that its wings would develop the strength to fly. And that kid's compassion led him to actually 
hurt the butterfly he was trying to help so much. See, compassion alone is not sufficient to lead us to the right policies and practices. We must have God's wisdom as well. When we're treating the poor, we will end up with our compassion alone hurting the people we're trying to help the most if we're not aided by God's wisdom. All right? I know I've been working in, in things like this for, for over 13 or 15 years now. I'm telling you, this is true. All right? So keep your compassion, yes, but let it always be added <clears throat> or, or supplemented with wisdom. God meets our, our greatest needs now. He doesn't just provide for the poor through the generosity of others in our work. Uh, but, but there's one need that God meets. We all have this need, our greatest need, in fact. And this is a need that will never be able to be met through our own work. God meets our greatest need through the work of his son. Look at, look at Ruth chapter 2, verse 10. We're beginning to close here, which, as we always say, is different from actually closing, but we are beginning to close. Ruth chapter 2, verse tw- 10 asks this question. Ruth looks at Boaz and says, why, why have you had favor on me? Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I'm a foreigner? I, I, don't, I don't belong here. I mean, why are you being so kind? Why are you welcoming me? Why are you going out of your way to do this? Now, I, I feel like this sometimes. We should all be able to ask that question. And Boaz, Boaz actually looks at Ruth and explains, I'll tell you why I'm doing this. It, it's because of what you've done for someone else. I've heard about what you did for, for Naomi, how you left your father and your mother. I've heard about how you left your home and how you came alongside Naomi and accompanied her and how you sought to rescue her from this, this terrible condition that she had fallen into because you love her. I've heard about all of that. That's why I'm doing this, Ruth. I'm having favor on you because I'm, I'm here representing God. God's seen everything you've done, and, and he's seen all of this, and it's because of what you've done for someone else. Now, you and I should be able to ask God the exact same question this morning and every day of our lives. God, why have you had favor on me? Why have I found favor in your eyes? Why do you take such special notice of us? We don't belong here. We don't belong in heaven. We don't belong amongst those who have an eternal inheritance in your eternal family. We don't, we don't belong here. I often tell people if, if I were to try to step into heaven, I'd probably set some kind of alarm off. But I, why? Why do you accept us? And God answers that question, but it, it's, it's the exact opposite of what Boaz says to, to Ruth. When God says why he has favor on us, he doesn't, he doesn't say it's because of what you have done for someone else. He says it's because of what someone else has done for you. I have favor on you, God says, because of what my son, Jesus, has done for you. He says, I've seen it all. I've seen what Jesus has done to take your place. How he left his father and his home to come alongside sinners. I've seen how he's done that. How he came to rescue you because you'd fallen into the worst condition imaginable. Your sins would have separated you from me forever Without hope of forgiveness, if Jesus had not... Now, you, you think Boaz crossed some barriers? God says, if my son had not crossed the greatest of all barriers between a perfect God and sinful man, if he had not crossed that barrier, you would have no hope. The, the high king of heaven himself crossed that barrier 
and not only came and spoke kindly to us, but took our place in judgment. And God says, I've seen it all. You want to know why I have favor on you? That's it. It's because of my son. It's because of Jesus. He took your place. He died on the cross. He, he, he put on himself the judgment that your lives and my life deserve. But God didn't leave him there. After he suffered in our place, God raised him from the dead on the third day. And he put him in the place of supreme authority over every man and woman and child and over all of heaven and earth such that Jesus could say in Matthew 28, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore, make disciples of all nations. Jesus still sits in the place of supreme authority over all kings and all rulers and all parents and all authorities and all adults and all children and yes, even you. Perhaps you think you're the one in the position of authority evaluating him this morning. And I'm here to tell you it's different. He is evaluating you. God meets our greatest needs through the work of his son. It's because of Jesus that he can welcome us and say, son, daughter. Why does he have favor on us? I'll I'll say it the way the song says it. Because the sinless Savior died. My sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Would you consider this morning that the Son of God has taken your place in judgment, that you might be pardoned by the God who created you and welcomed into his family forever? And would you this time not refuse him, but take him up on that offer? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus. We thank you so much. And as we prepare to receive these reminders of his grace, the bread that represents his body, the the cup that represents his blood, shed for us so that we could be forgiven. Help us to remember that as often as we do this, we proclaim his saving death until he comes. And I pray that For those of us who walked in not as believers, but unbelieving, skeptic, skeptical, I pray that you would would change that, you would transform us, that your your spirit would go, go through the room and convert our hearts so that we know you and love you and receive your son Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have come to faith in you by your grace at some point in the past, I pray that you would strengthen that faith even now as we hear the gospel again and celebrate your grace toward us. We thank you so much, and we ask you for this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.